it's always going to be you know symbolic and you have to always question when things come about how can over one night everyone suddenly be woke suddenly be woke it's not possible <laughs> it takes years to really understand racism and even us as like black and brown people like yeah we are always still learning we're still un understanding how racism affected us in what ways this affects us how we can help how we can't help what, what are the issues so there's no way a white person or a corporation overnight suddenly became you know some sort of Angela Davis. Welcome to the Brown Don't Frown podcast with your host Tanya Hardcastle. We're here to engage in a thoroughly inclusive conversation with women from different backgrounds. Shaped by our cultural, racial and social experiences, we share our stories. Black Lives Matter has marked the start of a new revolution for some. For others, it is a continuation of their long fight to end racism. By contrast, the polar opposite has seen Black Lives Matter lambasted as an attack on white identity and the preservation of the status quo. On today's episode, in the wake of Black Lives Matter, we discuss white denialism, colorism, and the desensitization of black trauma. I'd like to introduce you all to Basaya Twins, a fellow LSE alumni, former general secretary of the LSE Students' Union and political activist. A big welcome to you from Brown Don't Frown Basayo. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I guess I'm as good as I can be, you know, in this, I guess, one separate part is the pandemic and being in lockdown and just being quite frustrated, not being able to, you know, be out with friends. But then also now with the whole, you know, Black Lives Matter protests and even the fears about easing lockdown. It's just a rollercoaster of emotions always, you know, never, no week is boring. I can say that. Yep, yep, there's a lot, lot happening. Do you want to tell us a bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, sure. I'm, um, I work heavily in the education sector. So I provide advice, consultation to university schools um, and any other key stakeholder who want to make the process of higher education or mainstream education more inclusive. Mm. Um, and so, and that stems from obviously my work at the Students' Union and doing a lot of activism in higher education and higher education sector. Um, and now I've actually started to do some work with, um, I guess, a social action youth organisation that supports young people from disadvantaged backgrounds who are at risk of, you know, youth violence to kind of develop policies and strategies and interventions to help them empower them in their settings, you know, to give them the best quality of life possible. And then on the side, as you said, I'm, I guess I'm a political and social commentator <laughs> who, yes. uh, <laughs> who, you know, tries to make com complicated issues, political issues, quite um, accessible um, and digestible for everyone so everyone can enter the conversation. We're talking in the context of something that's really horrible to talk about also at the same time. I hope it can be empowering and inspire others to um, continue the change. Uh, that Black mm. Lives Matter has sparked as a response to the violence and anti-black racism following the death of the black American man Trayvon Martin a few years ago and following the acquittal of his killer George Zimmerman um, and while the impact of it has steadily risen and attracted global attention since its inception I think four years later its potency has been felt more than ever in recent weeks following mm. the murder of George Floyd um, by uh, an American police officer. We can start off talking um, about the first part, white denialism. It's something that mm -hmm. I think as people of color, especially black people see happen very often, particularly in professional contexts. Um, so when we talk about racism, we are by and large talking about the systematic discrimination and oppression leveled against black people and of course other minorities by white people. Um, do, mm. do you think that because this power imbalance is so deeply embedded and normalized that denialism is legitimized as a coping or deferral strategy by white people? Of course, yes, I think. 
um, the way racism manifests itself is very highly visible and highly invisible. And so the invisible, the visible parts are the parts that we don't see as much, I guess, especially in the UK. Mm. Um, obviously, there's, there's, you get people that call you names. You get people that, you know, very... I guess um, just very ignorantly or dismissively, you know, make sure you know that they're racist. But a lot of it is institutionalized and those systems are very difficult to kind of locate and monitor. Um, and so people use that as an excuse to be like, well, I'm not actively being racist. You end up in these circumstances based mm -hmm. on something bigger than them. And so it allows them, to, it removes agency from the individual and it allows them to say, you know, that they, that they don't see it because they're not physically doing it. And I guess now the concept of being complicit is mm. now, I guess, now people are starting to understand how you can be complicit in um, racist systems without having to call anyone the N-word or calling them exactly. another type of word, you know? So I think, I think that's what it is. I think the, the British way of, I guess, coordinating their racism is, is, is very skillfully done, which allows people to mm. deny it. Yeah, definitely. I remember reading um, Rennie Edo Lodge's uh, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race a few years ago. And I'm sure mm. there were so many people of colour who can relate to so many different scenarios which she spoke mm. about. But in particular, there was one excerpt that I remember where she spoke about being at uni, uni and um, going to these tutorials about racism um, and discrimination. Mm. And her friend went with her um, to those classes, but then dropped out halfway through. Mm. And she said that it, it just wasn't for her. And Rennie said that she resented her friend for being able to just cop out of it and just walk mm -hmm. away. For her, it was something that she couldn't just opt out from learning about because it was so important. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about racism, when we look at the past, it then makes it feel as though slavery happened a long time ago. And people always mm. say that as a defense mechanism, because I remember talking about racism or talking about colonialism um, at school. And I remember people saying, like, you need to get over it sort of thing. Um, but when we really think about it, the British Empire actually began back in what, like the 16th century and didn't actually end until well after World War Two. And if you want to get technical mm. about it, it was, I guess, the independence of Hong Kong, which was in the 1990s. So that's over 400 years of colonialism. Mm. So it's existed for much longer than our current post-colonial world. So that really should set the scene for the conversation yeah. that we have. But it unfortunately isn't recognised in that way. Yeah, because as you said, like you need to be well learned. You know, the, the the thing about racism is that it has its history, and a lot of people find it difficult to even deny racism exists. But you have to be well learned. And this country, as we know, there's obviously these movements about diversifying or de um, decolonizing the curriculum. It's not yeah. just about you know making people of today feel good about themselves. It's also about understanding how these systems. Um, intertwine and how we've how we're a product of as you said those 500 400 600 years of yes. systematic transatlantic colonialism in all regions of the world but I guess it it's almost like we talk about white denialism but it's almost like white infantilism you know what I mean I feel yeah. like there's, a, there's an element yeah. of white people that they, they, they're mollycoddled that they, it seems they have this like lack of maturity in their history of other people and their and their role in it so they've they're but they're taught that Henry VIII was as big as it got, you know, in terms of someone who's been malicious or it was their fight in 1066 Battle of Hastings. That's the kind of history they're taught to give them a sense of pride in themselves. Yeah. But it's been, but they've omitted how they relied on all these quite aggressive and manipulative and racist and dangerous and violent tactics to sub subjugate many people um, to a system that mm. we're seeing it now with the reason why there's obviously the emig emigration flow of emigration is based on those systems so white, I think white infantilism is a big thing and until white people are not babied through history they won't understand actually the role they play and how they've got to where they are now 
Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree with you on the being babied and infantilized. And a lot mm-hmm. of people talk about white fragility in that sense where people don't want to acknowledge it or they just, they just run away from it. Really. They're too afraid to uh, confront it. Um, and that leads me on to my next question. Is there a difference between white denialism and unconscious bias? Yeah, because unconscious bias is is anyone, you know, is subject to yeah. unconscious bias. We all have our biases. Um, and a lot of them are dangerous and some of them are useful. You know, if you look at like human beings, we don't need to go through things to know if they're good or bad. We just get mm. told certain things and we draw conclusions because we don't have to, you know what I mean? It's that kind of idea of survival. You know, you don't put your hand in fire if someone's told you not to put your hand in fire. Um, and then over time you get the idea that fire's paint, that fire's hot, but a lot of us haven't even got a hand in fire to know. But we, do you know what I mean? So you just get those kind of ideas. But then white denialism is a specific type of combination of like unconscious bias if we look at the systems for which they're complicit which they might not know or understand how they've gained the ideas and perceptions that they have mm. but it's also very active racism actually if you deny it if you yeah. deny something doesn't mean you don't know it exists you know you can deny it and be like you know what and if and if we look at the again with what the thing with whiteness is that because they spent so much time um observing and trying to you know analyze our races there's a lot of white quote-unquote history or white behavioral characteristics that gets left unanalyzed and so when we look at white people themselves or the way they look at things you have to look at different class white people and different you know groupings of them so you've got like this maybe the elite the economic elite you know the people in Westminster the political elite who are highly aware of the role of racism and they might not necessarily be racist but they know how it benefits them economically so what they do is they try and confuse and and feed maybe more of the white working class who generally haven't got the same knowledge or exposure to different groups of people and because of their economic I guess inferiority they it's easy for them to blame it on people who look different to them so you can see there's many different agents within the white community who are might be denying it for many different reasons and so I think that obviously there would be some literature on whiteness but I think it goes unread and white people themselves because they become the default um they can deny it because whiteness in their history is purity you know in all religions yeah. whiteness is associated with some sort of purity all they know is the industrial revolution so they don't understand that before they were seen as you know the superior people uh, the, the middle east and china you know and you know south asia south asia and africa we are and even even if there's islamophobia like the first universities yeah. were if i'm correct it's like the madrasas or you know what i mean they yeah. were yeah. the first type of university so when whiteness whiteness starts with the industrial revolution unfortunately and that's obviously why they can deny it because all they know is their greatness in, yeah. in that sense so, yeah yeah so essentially everything you speak about is essentially if you were to boil it down to a few words it would just be like whitewashing so everything is painted with rose yeah. windows so everything's all rosy and the most violent thing that's happened was henry the you know beheading one of his wives so yeah so yeah. i definitely um can see how how these things have happened and it's really easy to see how we have come to this particular point in our um history as human beings um when yeah. you look at when you look at the past but it's very difficult for a lot of white people when the as you said the curriculum it doesn't teach colonialism it doesn't teach the past it only looks at very selective things to glorify yeah. um western development and western ideals and things like that so and it is homogenized it's grouped together as one big amazing thing so america europe you know they're all grouped together Mm. as successes having worked together and things like that so again that is part and parcel of white denialism and 
you're absolutely right that we need to decolonize the curriculum. I think there's been petitions that have been going around to do that. And I hope it really does make a difference because I, all I remember from my history lessons at school is literally Henry VIII. Like I don't remember anything else. So, Um, but even, even, even when we look past, um, like, the mainstream education obviously that that's the beginning point because you know yeah. people in their formative years but even when you look at higher education you know when you look at universities and research centers universities are there to generate knowledge and that yeah. knowledge underpins society internationally and locally and so what happens is if our lecturers and the curriculum at, in higher education is still very white centric or eurocentric Mm. then what's going to happen is that it's, we're just going to perpetuate the same things, you know? So I think not even just mainstream, I think people in higher education need to look at, actually, we are not teaching the truth or we're just seeing a distorted history and that is going to underpin our policies, our foreign policy, our attitudes. So it's, it's really across the whole education spectrum, actually, in terms of the curriculum needs them to be decolonized. Um, and I think the universities, particularly because they are, their sole purpose is to generate knowledge. And that knowledge in most in most of the world becomes fact. And yeah. so that's why it's important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely agree. White denialism, we see in forms of microaggressions, I think a lot of the time in like a professional or institutional context. So for yeah. example, people of color are often mistaken for other people of their race. Um, it's very degrading every time it happens. And it's sort of, I mean, it happens to me, it ha- has happened to me in the past. And I'm sure you can relate to it happening to you. It just chips away at your identity and it reduces you to that one thing of oh, that Asian woman or that brown woman or yeah so and I think that's where it needs to be confronted when think when incidents like that happen um, most of the Mm. time it goes unnoticed or people don't really say anything or they're not corrected it sort of get people just move on from it Um, and Mm. I think that's a really significant turning point because it could go either way from that point you can either if you confront someone about it they can either be very defensive and say oh well you know whatever not a big deal get over yourself stop it stop being so sensitive or they can Mm they can acknowledge it and they can express their willingness to change and say, Oh, you know, this is actually my own unconscious bias. I'm doing this because I am grouping these races together and that's all I think. And I need to change that sort of thing. So that's where I think the turning point can be with just like really simple things like that, that we previously didn't confront. Cause I don't remember confronting stuff like that when it happened to me, I just like moved on swiftly maybe because I found yeah. it embarrassing or like I thought it was just petty, but really it's yeah. not, it does have an impact on people. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if you saw, but recently I think um, it was on father's day, the conservatives official Twitter account, they posted a campaign poster ha- saying happy father's day. And it featured a black guy with his mixed race kid. Um, yeah. Everyone like freaked out saying, Oh, how can you do this? This is not your well, the voters who voted conservative in particular, the most recent election, they're all working class um, from, you know, a lot of the red labor strongholds in the Northeast. Yeah. So it didn't really sit well with them. And it just goes to show that it's so much easier to associate black with negativity than white with negativity. Yeah. And that's something that we've just internalized as a whole species, not just white people, but also black people. That's yeah. just accept it. Like, oh, this must be how life is now. Mm. No, yeah, it's very true. And, and I think, I think when, if you're a black or brown person, when you, when you do these things and they respond, it's easier for them to be like, it's because we have an agenda. But now that the Tory party did it, it it allows them to kind of look at race between the same groups of people, you know what I mean? And be like, actually, well, black black and brown people have nothing to do with that poster. So now project that onto the Conservative Party and see, do you know what I mean? So you can just see how 
how disingenuous even the the, the yeah. picture was because obviously the people who voted for you don't understand that or don't like that but then you also understand the importance of coming across as people who aren't racist and and you were proven right you were proven wrong by your own <laughs> party members you know so it, was, it, it allowed us you know to sit back finally and be like you know what, you go and do what you have to do yeah um, without us without derailing so yeah yeah those are the types of people who always caveat things with like oh i'm not racist but and they'll have something to say yeah. um exactly and yeah and now i'm questioning whether the definition of racism needs to change um robin mm. d'angelo who's quite a famous author um says that you know the mainstream definition of racism is actually inherently problematic because there's so much emphasis placed on conscious actions um and yeah. things being intentional um and that definition is problematic because racism is more about you know bias backed by legal authority and institutional structural yeah. control and things like that and i think those keywords like institutional and legal and authority are what we really need to look at because those are what continue to perpetuate and continue racism as you said to mm. further you know the powers that be their own agenda essentially mm. no yeah it's true i think i think even myself at one point i was like well certain like we had debates you know with friends or family or yeah. talking about like if a, if a black person was racist to somebody and for a long time we were it was an agreement that you could be racist to a white person if you said something racist it was like that comment mm -hmm. was racist right but then see, as time goes on and you understand actually like the different power dynamics involved the historical implications um how actually regardless of the local system or local the location of that racist act being done we are always part of a global much wider system which mm. means that you can never really be racist in the way that they want you to believe that you can be racist because you never really ever have that much leverage in your own you know situation or power so i think it definitely needs to change otherwise it gives white people an opportunity or any any um i guess dominant racial group in whichever context the ability to kind of be like you you're racist and, and to place a lot of more power on an action than it is when really mm. yeah. you know the system is, is upheld by white supremacy so it's, 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 it's always located at them really and truly yeah and you know turning the other cheek isn't just right mm. in, in our own personal thoughts in our homes or communities but it also pervades the working environment um and if a company's diversity and inclusion strategy comes about as a coincidence a lot of companies have done mm. now following blm or, mm. or you know it's seen as a nice to have like an add-on you know how would mm. they would impact their long-term sustainability given the current context um, it can never, it can never make the transformative changes. I think there's yeah. many stages of being maybe quote unquote a good ally or being someone who is in touch and empathetic to people of a particular group at a time. And yeah. the first stage is obviously just showing some sort of acknowledgement that you acknowledge something's happened. Another thing is obviously making, given some sort of concessions. Mm. Um, and the long term thing is, is a change of heart and the way you do things, addressing your structural internal systems and attitudes. Um, but that, that one there requires a lot more work and a lot more commitment and dedication. The first ones I've spoken about don't require much effort. You know, there's, you can, you can wear out a statement quickly. You can say, we, we commit to doing this. And these are easy things that you can do in the short term, but really and truly, if they want to commit to it, they have to commit to the root cause of it, which is that concept of the white supremacy. And in many different cases, capitalism, which fund, which was funded by all these, yeah. you know, front racism more or less. So they have to commit to that, but their very existence relies on these structures being around. So you always have to question anyway, you can never commit to it because it requires you to dismantle your own, your own core, you know, your yeah. own businesses, yeah. your own platform. So it's always going to be, you know, 
symbolic and you have to always question when things come about how can over one night everyone suddenly be woke suddenly be woke it's not possible <laughs> it takes years to really understand racism and even us as like black and brown people like yeah we are always still learning we're still un- understanding how racism affected us in what ways this affects us how we can help how we can't help what what are the issues so there's no way a white person or a corporation overnight suddenly became you know some sort of Angela Davis it, it's not mm. possible so yeah. we, we wonder and then if we're not in those spaces then you know it's, it's, it's based on violence and based on someone dying that doesn't create change you have to create change based on involuntary change which means that even in the best of days you still want to commit to that change even if things look good but everyone hates death so obviously it's sensationalized <laughs> but yeah, outside of, of that how, how can we, do you know what I mean like if, if we came back next week or like three months later, and hopefully no one else has died by the hands of the police, would you still be committed? Or you, do you need the sensationalism? Do you need the outrage to fund it? And that's yeah. that. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think human memory, because it's so short term, we forget things. Mm. When things aren't mm. happening in front of us, we just put it, push it, brush it to the side. And this is what the concern is among so many people now. There's clearly a huge momentum that's been gathered, but it is already slowly rifting away. We need to keep it alive to, to make systematic change, as you've said. Um, and one interesting aspect is the term or the mass media's insistence on grouping us under BAME. Mm. And a lot of the time, you know, people use it to try and heighten their diversity statistics, grouping people together. Mm. But a lot of the time, it you know, it undermines the very solidarity and anti-racism it purports to engender in the first place. It essentially enables governments and corporations to duck out of responsibilities. For a long time, mm. the lack of representation of Black people has been camouflage under BAME. So, though we as minorities are grouped under this category for our otherness, this is can be seen as quite a lazy and short-sighted policy response to cultural ethnic religious and racial diversity um i don't mm. know if you saw recently matt hancock was asked um how many black people there are in the cabinet and he said that his government had a strong bame representative cabinet uh, and the news reader <laughs> then then repeated her question and said how many yeah. black people specifically there are in his cabinet and i was just w- wanting to ask you whether you think bame masks our lack of progression against anti-blackness in the uk Oh, yeah, of course it it does, because people use blackness synonymously with BAME. I think if the distinctions were made and those particular contexts to use these groups to these terminologies in, it wouldn't be as problematic. But I think people are are against the word BAME just because of they're looking at the benefits made under that under that um, umbrella term. And it feels as though particular groups at particular times don't benefit from this, as we said, like, um, I guess, generalization. Um, so yeah, I, I just don't think I don't think it's a very good term to use. However, it it it, it exposes how mm. the elite white people, white people in general, see us. They just see us as you said, others. That's it. And yeah. others, because they're so ignorant of our histories, they assume that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You know that that everything that that the Asian people yeah. go through, black people have gone through, or, or vice versa. Um, and so that's what they do. And again, they don't want to have to admit that there are disparities within that group because again it makes them feel actually how comes these particular people have different outcomes to white people but also amongst them we sometimes we have particular views of particular immigrants themselves if you look at different if you look at colonialism as well different types of groups had different relationships with the british empire or the british you know um um i don't know what you call it the british imperial power you know yeah, so yeah. It, it masks all of that and again if you mask that you're gonna have to educate your people so it's easier to to kind of sedate everyone with these generalizations and to teach them about the different people who are there and it, and it, and as we said obviously this is 
we all understand how you know whiteness affects people but the reality is there are certain groups within BAME who have be- who have more privileges or a different experience yeah. that then masks you know the performance and access to health wealth you know and peace of other groups within that and even if you look at the Asian community a lot of people point to the Asian community when we look at the cabinet there seems to be a lot more maybe Asian representatives there mm. than there would be black specific and even in the Asian groupings you've got Bengalis and Pakistani groups yeah. who are not doing yeah. as yeah. well or nowhere near as well as maybe the Indian group or even people who, or people of Chinese backgrounds yeah. so there's many different groups there but it benefits them to kind of make us seem more simple than than, than the story is because it allows them to only give one solution do you know exactly. what I mean so it's like oh BAME only gets one solution rather than 10 solutions for different groups within that yep blanket blanket approach to everyone who isn't white really yeah yeah basically Um, yeah yeah and yeah the second part of our discussion centers around colorism Mm. um black lives matter but Mm. what about black skin when Mm. we look at mixed race people white and black they are defaulted as black automatically othered in more remote Mm. parts of britain i spent my secondary school years in a very remote town in the northeast of england i was the only non-white kid and Mm. because we weren't white we were just black so Mm. that's that's how they saw us which is fine Mm. because obviously there were no other races around fair enough Um, yeah but yeah like my brother was called the n-word and things like that and it's just crazy how this is the, the otherness happens you just see it manifest in mm-hmm. your eyes and you think what's happening mm-hmm. like, why are anyone who isn't white why are they just grouped into this category and just left mm-hmm. there without actually taking the time to respect their you know very specific culture or um, aspect of their life so yeah mm-hmm. i just wanted to highlight um colorism because that is a real thing um as mm-hmm. a british bangladeshi woman myself it's long colorism within the south asian diaspora has determined women's life prospects i grew up hearing comments like oh but you're not as fair-skinned as x or you don't go out in the sun you'll get too dark you won't find a husband Mm. and yet my family are probably one of the most progressive families i know Mm. in relative terms within the south asian Mm -hmm. community um and i know that blm has empowered a lot of south asian communities to challenge the stigma and dehumanization faced by dark-skinned people i just wanted to ask you do you think it will also challenge the colorism faced within black communities and change perceptions around skin tone hierarchy for good <sighs> you know that's a very good question it's a very big loaded, question sorry <laughs> yeah yeah no no it, it's, it's it's necessary because i think i was saying even before we got on the podcast or maybe earlier on in the sense that like right now the black lives matter i guess protests have been going on for maybe two or three weeks or maybe a month in the uk now yeah. and it's and you can see it's different stages there was outrage sadness and there was like anger there yeah. was protesting there was you know a lot of sharing resources for white people and now we've got to a stage where we're kind of looking at actually how unified are we as a people mm. what kind of terms concepts have we internalized that divide yeah. us even further and create a concept that actually we are not even ready necessarily to dismantle the system do you know what i mean we haven't if you look at i know we're talking about colorism here but even if you look at like um transphobia you know and, all, and homophobia and all that kind of stuff we, we haven't really said everyone is equal based on the fact that they belong to this group we're trying to mm. still trying to divide us you know so yeah. I think when it comes to colorism it's a big question because we've internalized a lot of things and even if it doesn't necessarily come from the white man himself there's a lot of things that we need to look at because what we're going to do is end up in a position where we are just uh, replicating the system just that now brown and black people are at the top mm. but it should it should bring these conversations but the, the, the issue is is that 
when people are eager to to defeat a, a common enemy, quote unquote, what they do is that they kind of ignore the work that needs to be done. Um, and they say, not now, you know, not now. We, we, you know, after we get rid yeah. of this system, then we'll talk about it. But sometimes it's too late. And it kind of alienates many people within the movement as well. Like the darker skinned people in any movement yeah. might feel more isolated because they feel like actually, you know, you've done a lot as well as the white man to me, you know, in this, in, in this movement. Um, so hopefully it brings about that conversation in a, in a very tasteful, sensitive way, because it's been years and years and years, as our, our many ancestors will know, of it being internalised within us. And sometimes every unconsciously, we don't even understand it. So it's a hard question because I, I guess in a simple sense, I hope so. Yeah. But I'm very much aware that why hasn't it take, why has something like this taken so long, yeah. especially when it doesn't necessarily require the white, the white gaze, you know, we could have done no, this without the yeah. white man. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. It, it it we still did um so hopefully it does because it's, it's it's a very pressing issue yes it definitely is and yeah it's not something that i think will happen overnight i think it will take a very long time but we've already seen like things being done we've seen we've seen inroads being made like i think representation on screen historically when they wanted to pick mm. an ethnic person they pick someone you know of a lighter complexion um, yeah. someone who you know has greater pigmentation but now even on mainstream mm. films we're seeing people like Lupita Nyong'o and Naomi Aki and people like that which definitely empowers um, I'm sure a lot of mm. black women um, and people from minority groups I, I hope that does have mm. have a lasting change but maybe not something that's being focused on at this current time but something yeah. that maybe will come to the fore um, and I think yeah I'm sure white people also legitimize colorism mm. in a way, but without actually realizing it. Yeah, it's, it's just unconscious bias, I think, that exists within mm. deep-seated <laughs> thought processes within yeah. all human humans, in, in a sense. And we have internalized, yeah. as, you, as you said, the desensitization of black trauma. Police brutality itself has become a staple <clears throat> behavior to signify anti-blackness. We've seen how it's so disproportionately leveled against black people. Coupled with the history of slavery, there's almost a sense of numbness and desensitization around black trauma and tragedy. How can we all collectively work together to change and overcome that narrative? Again, another, another major <laughs> question. <laughs> Changing the narrative it is, is, such, is such a hard one um, because, first of all, we need to understand what narrative is actually in people's heads. Do you know what I mean? There's a difference between what is projected and what people take from that. So, first of all, there needs to be an understanding of how black we are perceived first, a very honest view. And the issue is people are not honest about it, so we can never really understand how far to go in transforming that narrative. That's just one. Um, but I think... Obviously, it, it's, it, it starts with, like, a lot of it's education, you know? And I'm not talking about education in the institutional sense, necessarily, in terms of schools and universities, but just everyone around you, how you engage in your exposures to different people and your process of learning and kind of computing and, you know, seeing people in a different sense. I think that needs to... There needs to be... It's almost like a segregated, segregated community that we live in. Mm. And it links to, like, echo chambers where a lot of um, Asian and African or Caribbean communities and Middle Eastern communities and just the whole, um, just, you know, basically non-white communities, they tend to live together. 
yeah. you know and then and some places obviously there's a lot of white people there's white people mixing but a lot of places you live in the same place so the education you get from a lot of these people tends to be your exposure to them in the real world and on social media or on in the media yeah. so there needs to be a lot more mixing in a more natural way rather than it being so rigid and being like okay we're going to meet based on this particular opportunity there needs to be more of a normalization of engaging with these different types of communities at different levels yeah. and that will help you like if because i know people hate it when you go i've got a black friend but if you genuinely even about having a black friend if you had like a black teacher yeah or you had a black doctor yeah. do you know what i mean or, and don't get wrong the people who still even beyond that are still racist but it normalizes people in particular um people, in, yeah. In, in your, yeah then you've got the media as well i know there's a, this idea of like wanting to express the experiences of black people in certain ways but then we do add to the trauma porn as well you know we need to be yeah. able to have a lot of more representation in places that aren't just about upset. I know you mentioned Lupita and other people, but a lot of their roles are about hardship, you know? Yeah, like sometimes yeah, like, yeah. just have a black girl who's a teacher and there's yeah. no problems with her. Do you know what I mean? Normalize it. Yeah. Exactly. Don't get people on into interviews on on your on like GMTV or whatever people watch these days based on race only. Get black people talking about economics or science or sport. But we only are placed in these positions where we talk about race and therefore you're only gonna be seen as people who are here to disrupt the system, which is true hopefully but at the same time it makes us look very like conflict based and nothing else doing so there's a lot of issues with the media representation and there's a lot of about how we are mixing with young how we're mixing you know like why are we mixing in these ways um and you know but that, that's all about i guess look at capitalism as well you know you want you want certain demographics to to um, occupy certain spaces which tend to be low working class spaces in in the cities rather than you know allowing people to mix in in better ways and and i think it's about white education. One of the biggest things I have with um, with racism is that black people, brown people, non-white people are taught how to navigate these spaces, rightly so. Yeah. Yeah. But white people aren't necessarily taught by force about racism and race relations. Like, you know, you get a lot of people going to like Russell Group universities who come from, you know, particular schools yeah. and they're not taught upon arrival that yeah. how they've grown up has been distorted but it's on us to now teach them teach or to them, navigate yeah. them but they need to be if they're going to have a proper education in life they can't have a proper education if they've never mixed with these people in particular ways so for me it's also making sure that white people don't go they can go through their whole life not learning and it's about the world adjusting to their needs but they now need to adjust to the world's needs otherwise mm-hmm. they won't have a proper space in it in the future and people talk about you know the global majority the reality is white people have distorted history to suit a minority of people in this world <laughs> and most of the world isn't isn't, isn't white so yep. how come everything no. is catered towards them you know so yeah. it's about just making sure we control it in the media especially films tv whatever it is then also in real life in uh, you know and and advertising and advertising is one of the worst ones but yeah we just need to make sure that we've got we've got that natural um unbiased you know encounters with each other um that allow people to learn I guess that I think for me that's 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 the best we can do if it happens naturally. You know, people don't like yeah. to be taught things because it makes them feel like it's very instructional and very performative. But if you naturally, you know, were exposed to different communities in different ways, then hopefully, obviously, it goes two ways. You don't want to become a white savior complex, but at the same time, hopefully, it allows you to see people <laughs> beyond you know the media. Yeah. And people are very passive and lazy these days, so it doesn't help that social media has made us less less physical or less in person. But you know. Yeah, I definitely hear you on that, especially I think it is about representation at the end of the day on all levels. And mm. but as you said, it's got to come naturally from within. And that stems mm. from you know, 
parenting, how your how you speak to your children about race. Not many people exactly. have these discussions. White families probably don't. A lot of celebrities exactly. have come forward and said, "Oh, I never I never spoke about this these things with my kids, and they're going to grow up not knowing anything about it. So now I'm going to mm-hmm. you know make the conscious efforts to, to educate them about this." So it does definitely begin yeah. at home. Boris Johnson recently led an inquiry into racial inequalities in the UK, and then he said alongside that that he wanted to end the sense of victimization and that comment went many different ways and people interpreted it differently as you said people are now being performative so a lot of people i saw in within my feeds who were previously silent before uh, on racism before black lives matter mm. um are now mm. just making every effort they can to virtue signal um and a lot of mm. empathy without actually doing anything to garner systematic mm. change um mm. and this whole narrative that i don't know if this is going to sound conflicting but there's also a narrative and I've, I've read this sort of sentiment within quite a lot of journalism and opinion pieces by Americans and quite conservative mm. black Americans as well. Uh, and they've mm-hmm. said that the narrative that only white people have the power to change things legitimizes mm-hmm. white superiority and that black mm. people are dependent on these power structures to make any change. Mm. And that this takes away black people's agency, the power to control their lives and their de- destiny and things mm. like that. And I think that goes mm. both ways, both white people and black people associating the black narrative with victimization and dependency um, and mm. seeing them as only victims and subjects of abuse of power. Um, and as you said, you've, you've said this a few times, it's about portraying black excellence and positivity and amazing achievements, which they've also um, achieved as well. And instead of focusing on all the negative, would you think mm. the Black Lives Matter movement in any way sort of skews the very positive elements that black people have achieved? No, I don't think it does. I think, I think it's one of those ones again, where it's like, um people want to talk about um problems in the world but no one wants to locate the perpetrator and it goes in every single type of oppressive group if you talk about like sexual abuse you know people can say many people have been raped but no one wants to talk about who are the rapists (laughs) do you know what i mean because it's easy to talk about the victims of it and and the honest truth is that this is an oppressive system that doesn't mean that i'm not trying my hardest that doesn't mean i'm not excellent because even if i even black excellence is still in the context of despite my situation i have excelled yeah jumping yeah there we go so it's not to say I'm, I'm excellent you know what i mean i've done nothing it's probably because you worked 50 times as hard yeah and therefore your, your excellence couldn't even be couldn't even be um drowned out despite a system that's what we're <laughs> saying so i think people should not people should be okay by saying i live in a oppressive system i have to work twice as hard to do xyz but i'm still great and i still yeah, achieve all yeah. these things. that's the conversation we need to have rather than them being too mutually exclusive you know um, um conversations so i think that's one of the things that is the issue there is they're not mutually exclusive but also um it's another way for white people to deflect again and be like oh victimhood victimhood but it's like well you know you have the you are literally on our next do you know what i mean you are literally yeah. the one yeah. who are doing it so change it and we won't shout about it but number two i do understand what black people talk about victim victimhood and there are a lot of things that we can do to kind of soften the blow of the system but the ultimate issue is that it's a system you're upholding a system and there's only so far you're going to go without dismantling the system it's like saying i live in an oppressive household but what i'm going to do is try and build up create ways for me to avoid the abuse but the abuse is still the is overriding system yeah. you know what I'm saying? yeah so and i think it leads back to the global system of okay we, we've got two choices or or uh, or choices or both of them at the same time we can either work within the systems that we are especially diaspora work within the systems that we have make it better educate the people around us to make sure that we can excel in these systems mm. that doesn't mean you're against the system it just means you want to excel in in this kind of patriarchal capitalist system fine right and obviously your immediate yeah. needs need to be addressed so of course i'm going to campaign for health outcomes because i'm in the system or you've got another choice which is again to build up 
the reputation, the, ec the economies of the Middle East, of Africa, of Asia, of, of, of the Caribbean. So we don't have to subjugate ourselves to this type of system. Because at the end of the day, if we look at if racism would ever be eradicated, most likely not. No. But the issue is we haven't got a choice. We can't necessarily go back because our countries, our motherlands are subject to the global racist system and mm -hmm. global capitalist system. So therefore we're still going to suffer. But also, you know, we feel like we have rights here as well because we, this is our country as well. So we have to look at it realistically. We can't, we can't do it ourselves because we're yeah. not the ones doing it. Do you yeah. know, we're not the ones oppressing each other. So to the extent that we have leverage over our own oppression, yeah, we can, we can, we can stop colorism, for example. We can try and stop that. And it allows us at least to be kind to each other. Let's just redistribute resources. Let's change the narrative to inspire our own children and inspire our own families, fine. But that doesn't mean that when we get to the recruitment stage that they're not going to be racist. Exactly. You, can, you, can, you can make it to the recruitment stage and be excellent and get A's and whatever, cool. But there's still going to be someone there that's recruiting you who's still going to have an image of you. So how do we get to so them? What then? How do we so it's about, yeah. you get me? So it's about recognizing the different systems at play. Yes, there's an immediate system that one individual, there's also a greater system that upholds it. Mm. Then you've got the global system. So I think people are confusing the fact that we are, as a diaspora, we can be self-sufficient, you know, yeah. without, without the help of the, the, our motherlands, you know, and I talk about that in terms of ancestral ties. Um, which I think is a bit of a naivety, but I do genuinely understand that, yeah, at the same time we're showing our pain, we need to inspire us because showing our excellence is, is for our people as well. It's showing that, you know what, you've seen exactly. all the stuff on television, we're excellent, yeah. but then showing that we're oppressed is for the white people to say, you know what, change your ways. So it's about how do we, how do we control a message that has many different audiences, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and there are so many different things that play into that, as you said, you know, mm making you know trauma black trauma and black um, violence into the porno and that's something we need mm. to stay away from but at the same time we need to be able to highlight the systematic oppression that they have been subjected to and that can't mm. be done with only black people making all the noise it needs to come from the other side as well who are causing the oppression to to begin with and i think yeah balancing that is is quite tricky because there are so many different voices especially because of social media everyone has a voice everyone has a part to play and that can sometimes feel quite conflicting it can feel like you're in your own sometimes you're in your own echo chamber or sometimes you're you know, torn between two very different narratives and then it becomes mm. a binary between one or the other but it doesn't necessarily have to be that I think you can be both you can you know collectively try and dismantle the systematic oppression and say this is what's affected me but at the same time feel empowered um, within your mm. own right without saying oh someone who looks down on me because I'm black doesn't define who I am as a person I'm still mm. who I am and I'm still amazing but at the same time I want to dismantle this horrible system that's you know exactly. everything's been stacked against me initially when um, I was thinking about this question I was thinking oh well I'm gonna you know really shout about this because I've had to work this times as many hard as someone mm. in my my white counterpart so I should be so happy that I'm, I've done so well in spite of these obstacles but then I'm thinking yeah. but why why should I have to have why did I have to have struggled for me to yeah. be recognized in that way why couldn't it be as easy for me as the next white person yeah, like why, what happened to black and brown mediocrity? You know, I mean, white people can be mediocre and no one asks them to be twice as hard, like, but us, we yeah, have to yeah. excel. It's ridiculous. I want to be basic sometimes, you know? <laughs> Literally want to live a basic life. Yeah. <laughs> My last question is, hopefully this ends on a positive note. How do we explain Black Lives Matter and police brutality to young kids, black and white, without desensitizing them to violence or normalizing the existence of racism? I've, I've used the word normalizing because 
I don't know. Maybe this is like defeatist, i.e. the world is racist and we just have to like live in it and can do nothing about mm. it. We have to accept it. We have to accept the status quo. I think mm. that attitude in and of itself is problematic and needs to shift and we should mm. um, empower kids to change the system, not to say, oh, this is mm. how it is. Deal with it. Mm. Definitely. I think you're right. I think it's about it's about telling them that you are in a particular system but I think it's about telling them that you are born into a particular system that in history hasn't treated our people particularly nicely. And that is why we're in a position that we are. Yeah. However, you have the power to contribute to overturning this system. So one by one, group by group, people by people, community by community, we have all got a role to play in doing so. And that is going to show itself in how how you navigate the space, how you perform sometimes in life, but also more about the hope that you've instilled in yourself to know that you are a great person regardless of what everyone is saying about you. Yeah. And you should never stop fighting because even if in your generation it doesn't change, you are contributing to acceleration of change for another yeah. generation. So I think it's about us being like, we feel defeated because we feel like in our own generation that we can, we can complete it and overturn it. And that's where the frustration comes from because we're like, oh my God. But it's like, no. We needed those people in the civil rights movement to yeah. do their bit. And we, the issue is we thought it ended there. But as we know, it no. doesn't. So what we needed to do is continue it into this now, you know, postmodernism. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. postmodernism. Like we need to do that. Then our, the next generation, they're going to do their bit. In, and they're also going to have to do it in the context of additional issues. Because we don't know how, how racism is going to manifest itself in maybe in the digital age you know, in a real robotic AI age. So it's yeah. going to have its own additional ways, data which, which racism is going to, exactly, yeah. data bias is a big one, isn't it? So it's how <laughs> yeah. it's going to evolve, you know? Yeah. So they're also going to have to look at what we've done, but also look at their own additional racist type of, um, I guess, structures to dismantle. Mm. Um, so I think it's about just having that delicate conversation about saying, this is the system, but you're excellent. So you don't have to be this statistic. You are going to excel, but also you are enough. Yeah. And don't let anyone allow you to feel like you're enough. You're not enough, but you've also got the support of the community to to do what you have to do. So I think it's just about having that delicate conversation. And it's hard for young people because they they don't really they don't really have the the details. All they know yeah, is they have know. the sentiment, they have the anger, but they don't know how. What do I do? So we need to make sure we have that generational conversation, communication open. Yeah. And you know, sometimes we have all these high level academic discussions, and even the general person doesn't understand what we're talking about yeah. until they feel accessible <laughs> yeah. to them. It's and so imagine how it is for, for younger yeah. people to be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Not everyone's going to read James Baldwin or you know, I mean, not everyone's <laughs> going to care about that. Some people just want to know, how do I get good health, you know, good health um, yeah. attention and advice. So it's just about making sure we keep those channels of communication open and we don't focus solely on talking to the white man, but we focus on talking to our own community as well to keep that institutional knowledge or community knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you there. It's, it's very important. It starts at home as well as outside of the home as well. There's, there are two aspects, a personal and I guess mm. the external as well. All the things I learned as a kid, like it, I've, ta I've carried it with me into my adulthood. And even if you mm. then look, reflect and you look back on what you were taught as a kid, even if it was wrong, it still stays with you in a way. It, it's, it, it makes such mm. a huge impact um, in the way in which you're brought up and what you're told by your family members and you know influential people around you as a kid. It, it really, really, I think I fundamentally believe that it stays with you. Usually 
ask my listeners to talk about a quote in a, in a book or anything that they've read recently that had an impact on them in any way. And today mm. I've got one. I actually don't know who's said this because I did Google it and I, it came up with loads of different people. So I'm actually not sure. Yeah. Um, but the quote is, yeah. when you've lived a life of privilege, equality can feel like oppression. Mm. So, it's a big one. <laughs> yeah. But, a big um, one. I actually did come across a quote, right, that I think is actually, now think about what we discussed, that is actually quite, re- like, relevant. Okay. And, you know, it's about this quote, it's weird. It's because um, when, I, when, I, when I Googled it, it said it was Winston Churchill. And obviously now it's like, oh, you can't really talk about Winston Churchill. <laughs> right? But when I Googled it properly, they said that actually they just, they just assign it to him he didn't actually say it so i think hopefully we're okay but hopefully it doesn't upset anyone but i don't think it's okay. church i think they just assigned it to him because they assign everything to white men do you know what i mean yeah um so it was basically saying um success is never hold on it says success is never final and failure is never fatal mm. so in that sense when related to this particular context i think a lot of people feel like success is one particular point in their life yeah, or yeah. one particular action and therefore they sometimes get complacent about it you know and yeah. but then also when you look at failure it's also like no failure you know what i mean is, is is that bad that it can't also be used for good so exactly. i think in, if you look at like the black lives matter movement or even just anti-racism movements as well never get too complacent about the changes that we've made but also just know that anything that hasn't worked it's been as the foundation for the next generation to build upon so I think that was something that really did stick to me when I applied to this particular context. Yeah, especially in relation to the last question about educating young people. It's people feel so disempowered and they feel like, mm. oh, I can't really make an impact. But then, as you said, civil rights movement, people thought that was it. Like we'd achieved it. We'd achieved equality and the end of racism. But it doesn't stop there. It continues. Thank you very much for coming on today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Brown Don't Brown podcast. If today's discussion interested you or you want to share your story, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Brown Don't Brown podcast and on Twitter at BDF podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at tanyasweeklydose.com. Join the conversation using the hashtag Brown Don't Brown podcast. Please like, share and subscribe. Thank you.